0: Welcome to the Big Fellas Podcast, where we chop it up about all things past, present, and future about the game of basketball. Where facts, stats, and context reign supreme. That is blasphemous. Sometimes it gets crazy, but we always keep it real. Always keep it real. Get ready to learn from players, coaches, and fans from all levels of the game and see the court in a brand new way. And now, fresh off the sidelines, here's your host, John Hartofillis.
1: What it do, fellas, and welcome to the Big Fellas Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, J.H., coming to you from New York City, the mecca of basketball. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Adam Filippi, Director of Pro Scouting for the Sacramento Kings. Adam and I met last December at TPG Scout School, where Adam was the lead lecturer for me and 20 other aspiring sports business professionals. We watched three college games at the Barclays Center, and sitting next to Adam, I learned so much about what it's like working in the league. In this episode, we spoke about Adam's role with the Dynastic 2000s Los Angeles Lakers, the day-to-day behind being a scout in the NBA, and the shooting techniques he's learned from legends of the game, such as Jerry West. We've got to go in and story for you today, fellas. Episode number 28, Adam Felipe, NBA Pro Scout. Hey Adam, how you doing? How you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. And I mean, it's, it's crazy how we only met close to a year ago at Scout School, but it feels like forever with everything that's gone on since then. But great to have you. It,
2: it's been a strange year. It definitely <laughs> has. And uh, You know, I was, uh, we were in New York before the holidays, which is always an interesting time to be there. And uh, after that, our lives kind of changed a little bit. But, uh, you know, hopefully we get back to normal here. and We can go back to our usual routines.
1: Oh, yes, hopefully. So, um, real quick, just to start off, can you kind of walk our listeners through your basketball journey, kind of how you got introduced and, and where it took you?
2: Well, like like most people, you know, I enjoyed the game as a young kid, watching it and most of all playing it, going to basketball camps. And, you know, my dad played, not professionally, but he played the game. And, you know, my brother and I were grew up around basketball, watching basketball 24-7. We were huge fans as little kids, you know, watching Dr. J, Kareem. Matthew Johnson, Larry Bird, and it was it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, like like uh, most passions, people decide to try to pursue those in a professional matter. Now, only some of us are destined to be able to play the game at the highest level. And I wasn't one of those guys, but I was uh, very fortunate to be able to, you know, play professionally in Europe for a few years and kind of build some relationships. And you know, uh, at some point, I kind of transitioned to a uh, you know front office role, which at the time in Europe was um, you know they didn't have any scouts, very few scouts, and very few NBA teams had scouts full time in Europe. But so that was kind of my my bicultural background because I spent times in both continents was my key to be able to break into the business and also have a certain skill set that at the time. Was in demand. What I'm saying is that you know everybody I know thinks they know basketball, and they probably do. They got ideas. They 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 have an eye for talent or for, you know the you know X's and O's. But at some time you you have to separate yourself from the less from the rest of the candidates, and you have to have a special skill. At that time I was very young, and my European experience was what allowed me to break into the league. So um, then you know I kind of covered other areas, of course, I've I've scouted on all three levels, international, college, and pro, and also, you know, done a lot of player development, you know, working with players individually. So I would definitely say that I've, um, you know, I've gotten a lot out of my initial investment, which was pure passion. Um, But at the same time, you know, we're always evolving. I think I told you guys this that when we when we met um, in December. It's that, you know, you have to always be up to date. You've got to be willing to reinvent yourself. And although you got in for one reason, eventually you may, you may find out that you're gifted in another area or more suit for, you know, a different branch of, of basketball. So I, I enjoy that. I think we continue to learn every day. And uh, we, we're skeptical sometimes about some areas of the game. And then we learn more and we embrace that. So I think, you know, I I like to think that I'm a basketball guy, 360 degrees.
1: That's awesome. All of us kind of think that way about just uh, loving the game. So like you, you touched on, you just had that bilingual, had that that cultural background that really helped you. Uh, How did you really get into scouting then of all things, just at the the start, right, right? When you stopped playing professionally?
2: Well, honestly, I didn't realize it, but as a, as a young kid, I was already scouting. Because I was watching games and I I was, you know, kind of picking guys' games apart. And that's a thing that I always recommend young players to do. Hey, pull up video. Pull up some YouTube video on some 80s games, 90s games. You could pick up a lot just by observing. So I'm an observer by nature. And um, it was kind of ironic. I quit playing in 97. I was 25 years old. And, you know, my career wasn't really going anywhere. Um, You know, I was enjoying myself over here or overseas. I'm, I'm in Italy right now, as you know seeing my family, but um, one of the teams I had played for had moved up to the first division. They had a new owner who had a lot of money and he was investing and he wanted to win the EuroLeague. Well, long story short was, my dad was also a, an acquaintance of his. And whenever he had questions about players, he would ask me, like, what do you think about this guy? And I'd seen him, I'd seen him play on TV or I played against the guy. Well, at the end of the day, he's like, well, you should be working for us. You know, you're more up to date than our general manager. In terms of knowing players out there and the truth is I knew a little bit but I wasn't you know I knew a lot more when I was a little kid than I did when I was 25 but I gave it a try and I'm like well I I could be really good at this there's a there's a definite need for this in Europe for teams not to rely only on agents recommending guys and this is before technology okay so you you had VHS tapes you had traveling teams you had um uh like free agent leagues so you really had to be uh everywhere to, to be up to date um after a while i realized that there was so much great talent and at the time you had the boom of the international player in the nba so dirk nowitzki was was drafted that year that i had started in 98 and it's like well who is this kid nobody knew who he was and teams that had done their homework did know who he was, and then you had Stojakovic, and then you had Kirilenko, and Paul Gasol, and so on. So automatically, NBA teams started were under fire from their owners, like, "Well, what are we doing in Europe?" So I was ready at the right time, and that's luck. You got to be in the right place at the right time, and I was. And for sure, if I had a little bit more of an accent. Or had not played, or did not know people, I would have not have landed a job. My first job that I landed was kind of like I did the draft for the Houston Rockets, you know, for free. And right after that, the, the New Jersey Nets hired me. So it was the '98-'99 season, which was a lockout year, and um, you know that was a year where teams were focusing on Europe because teams weren't, you know, they weren't playing. So I was available. I gave teams a lot of advice, and you know, did some free consulting. And the next thing you know, I landed a job. And my first job, I made like twenty-five thousand dollars. I thought it was a lot of money. I didn't care. I knew that I got my foot in the door, and you know, after that, you know, I, you know, I just kind of uh, stayed in the game. Thing got.
1: That's that's great. And when you were talking about at the beginning about how being in the right place at the right time, you also have to be the right person, which you were, and that's kind of what together got, got that all started, which is great. Thing you were talking about with the the Houston Rockets and the draft was that that's global vision scouting. Was that like a like an? Yeah, what I, did was, I was I was working like, for
2: the about? team in Bologna, Italy it was a terrific, it was a team, it was, it, was, it was an NBA team playing in Europe, okay? At that time, the two teams in Bologna, they had two teams and they were two of their three or four best teams in Europe. One team had David Rivers, who was an All-American, played in the NBA, who was a superstar in Europe, and they had Dominique Wilkins, a Hall of Famer, and a bunch of European players you wouldn't know that were just, you know, superstars. We're talking about an NBA budget almost. I mean, teams, guys were making, they had four, team, four players on the team were making like $2 million net. And uh, the other team in Bologna, had Danilovic, then they had Ginobili, then Nesterovic, all guys that played in the league. And so a lot of scouts came to Bologna, you know, from from the NBA, they came and then I met them and, you know, the rest is history. But um, I, I just consider myself very grateful because people gambled on a young guy. I was 25, 26 and teams were not afraid of gambling on me because, I mean, you, when I look at a 25-year-old kid, I'm like, okay, well, you know, it was, you know, he has to show me something. And um, I was lucky that somebody believed in me, and I, and I was able to continue pursuing this, this dream.
1: That's awesome. And then uh, from there, how did you end up in, in Los Angeles with the Lakers Dur- during one of the greatest runs in their franchise's history?
2: Well, um, I grew up as a Laker fan, okay? I, li- I had lived in L.A. in the 80s. And, um, well, getting back to your original question, yeah, from that Bologna team, I met people and I created a service that, you know, served uh, multiple NBA teams. Um, so one of my teams that I, that I um, was working for was the Lakers. And it's kind of ironic because all the teams made me feel really good. Oh, you're the best. You're great. You know, the typical American way, kind of bullshitting you like, oh, you're so good. You're so this, you're so that. And I think because they saw me as being very young. They never offered me a guaranteed contract, like a full-time contract to go exclusively with one team. We had preliminary talks, but it wasn't better for me than working for the 12 teams I was working for. Plus, I had a bunch of European teams. When the Lakers called, or I kind of proposed it to them, they said, well, let us think about this. And they had never said, good job, Adam. They had never said, we really want you but at the end, ironically, that was the team that said, hey, we want to take you exclusively. You can't work for anybody else now. And I took a pay cut to do that. But I did it. I wanted to be part of a, uh, of a championship caliber team. And um, look, the NBA is the NBA. But being a Laker fan as a kid and be, being able to jump in there when they were, had just won a championship was huge. And Kobe and Shaq, Phil Jackson, Jerry West was still there. So it was a dream come true. And um, it's kind of usually the Lakers invest in people that are former players or they're affiliated somehow to the organization or to their history. I was like the first guy <laughs> that was had nothing to do with their history. But I again, I did have a skill and a knowledge that was about something that was you know hot all of a sudden. That was international basketball. And part of my job was not only to scout, but it was also to educate the organization, the coaches, the staff about European basketball. Because if you don't know Europe, it's very hard to go and scout and know where to go and understand the level of competition. Because you may I may be saying, this kid's a lottery pick, and you look at his stats, and he's averaging three points a game and five minutes a game. So knowing Europe and the system of competition was huge. And it really helped, I think, every team I worked for, to, to, at the time, nobody was that educated and um, I think we we did a good job with the Lakers being up to date with the European guys and eventually we even drafted a really good European in the second round whose name is Mark Gasol um, who eventually was traded and we got his brother but you know those both those guys turned out to be all-star players so that was that was uh, that was good for us.
1: That's great definitely a really good find in the second round I and mean, then it turned into the, a piece that won you guys two championships in the in early the 2000s yeah. so that's, that's and, awesome. and guess yeah. what
2: and it and it helped Memphis it was a trade people always ripped um, Memphis for doing that but it was it was the it was a great trade for Memphis even more than us because we we were ready to win and we won Memphis was rebuilding and Powell didn't want to be in Memphis and Mark he instead loved Memphis so you know they had some great teams there with Lionel Hollins and Dave Yeager so it worked for both franchises
1: five, six years down the line in 2013. They're making a run. They're in the conference finals about a, yeah. I think they took a little bit what, five, six games. Like they're, they're making a push for a championship, and, which is pretty crazy to think about when a few it's years earlier. Market. Yeah, yeah they're, they're a super small market and they were getting ripped a few years before for a trade that actually ended up paying off uh, down the line. It was, so. it was a great, and I,
2: I remember seeing, seeing Chris Wallace and I said, this is an amazing trade for you guys. And uh, he knew it. He knew it. I got to give him credit. He knew what he was doing, but he still had to take a lot of heat.
1: <laughs> of course. That's great. So you've obviously touched on a lot of international basketball. What's kind of the biggest differences, I mean, even that you saw back then or even that you see now with international players compared to players in the U.S.?
2: Well, I'm going to say something that I hope is not politically uh, incorrect, but we have to watch everything we say these days. But I am extremely, extremely um, positive and extremely uh, I, I love European players. I do. You know, but not all European players are built to play in the NBA for a number of reasons. And uh, the main thing is style of play and also level of physical athletic abilities. And this is where it becomes hard because there's so many very good Europeans that never played in the NBA because they were kind of overlooked because you questioned if they could defend. You know, if they could, if they could handle 82 games a year, let's not forget about durability. You know, don't forget that in Europe, you practice every day. Twice a day, you play only one or two games a week. So practice is the heart of your week, and because you practice so hard, you know your body. And you turn pro usually when you're 18 years old or even earlier. Your body takes a beating, and when you're 30 years old, kind of, you know, your body may start wearing down. So you have to have a durable body to sustain the NBA rhythm. That's 82 games plus playoffs, now and, and the travel and all that. So. You know, that's one of my concerns all the time when I watch European players. It's if they have the physical athletic abilities and durability to sustain an 82-game season. That's my main concern. But when you talk about skill sets and basketball IQ, I think it's more common, and I say this all the time, if you take your average, and I'm saying average, European professional and your average NBA player, maybe the talent is superior with the NBA player, but the knowledge of the game the teamwork, playing without the ball, uh, and basic fundamentals of shooting, passing, and, and dribbling. I think the European, the average European player, is a little bit of ahead of the uh, average NBA player. Now, the level of athleticism is usually a little bit different, and that's what comes into play when we're drafting, when we're looking at the draft, and we're comparing a terrific college player and who we see against other American players. And uh, when we evaluate a European player, and this is exactly what happened with Luka Doncic. Luka was somewhat overlooked by some teams because don't don't believe that everybody had him number one or number two. I bet you most teams had him three to five. He was drafted three, which is probably where he belonged right there. But the doubt people had was, can he keep up speed wise athletically with the NBA? And of course he does actually, he's dominating this league, you know, but at the time you have a concern because you're watching a different brand of basketball. Okay. And you have to wonder sometimes about the foot speed and the durability.
1: That's why it's so important to have someone like yourself, that's, that's, that knows that different style of play and is able to, to make that distinction. So that's great. So after you left the Lakers in, in 2011 and, and went to the Hornets, what was that uh, transition like for you? And then when you got to Charlotte, what was that uh, situation like?
2: Well, it was, it was, look, it was a lockout year. So the Lakers kind of, you know, left us there wondering. And I, you know, the idea was to bring us back. But guess what? That lockout could have lasted a year. And in honesty, I was actually looking for a new place to be. I realized that I had nowhere to grow with the Lakers because it, it was a family-run organization. It still is. Okay. So I'm not going to beat, uh, you know, one of Dr. Buss's sons for a polit- position of assistant general manager or something like that. It just wasn't going to happen there. And uh, to be honest, I was looking for a change and uh, I miss the Lakers. You know, I, it's, it, there's nothing like, you know, being part of, you know, purple and gold, the, the, the history, the culture, it's something unique. Okay. But at the same time, I had to worry about growing and I wasn't going to do that with the Lakers. So when the Hornets, well, at the time they were the Bobcats, you know, they reached out to me, it was a perfect situation for me to have an opportunity to, to bring something new and also have an opportunity to grow. Um, so it was exciting. I think we won. It was a lockout year, so less games. but We won seven games out of 66. So that's an all-time low. So I've never been part of a rebuilding process. So actually, I, I embraced it. I, I loved it. Unfortunately, when you lose, you know, pressure comes, discontent, you change a bunch of coaches. And at the same time, you realize that a small market like Charlotte can never, unless they draft really well and that guy they draft decides to stay for a second or third contract, <laughs> unless that happens, a small market has a very limited chance of winning a championship or being a consistent contender or playoff team. We see it with Anthony Davis, right? Uh, we, after a while, we saw it with Kevin Durant. Those guys, after uh, a certain period, they, they wanna go somewhere to a big market. They wanna go, you know, whether it's for their endorsements or just to have a chance to go play with other superstars that wanna be in LA, Boston, New York, Miami, or Golden State. Um, so um, Charlotte, I realized after a while it was not that type of organization. And they, a bunch of beautiful people, but that also became a family run organization. And I started realizing there also that, you know, my, my room for improvement was not quite there. It was a little frustrating, but at the same time, I, I learned a lot. And, um, I, at that point I had been, you know, uh, with championship caliber teams and, you know, developmental, uh, organizations and, uh, you know, I was there for seven years and then I ended up in Sacramento two years ago.
1: Oh, that, that's great. So then that transition to Sacramento and, and you're, and you're still there now, what was that like?
2: Well, you know, but after a couple of years with, with Charlotte, I'll go back a second. I, um, I started getting more interest Towards coaching, and you know, teams started calling, and it was never the job that I really wanted. I always told myself I'm going to go get a coaching job, specifically for player development and shooting, which were my my specialties uh, in terms of teaching. Um, I wanted the right job. I wasn't going to take a pay cut, you know, to, to go do something else, which is more strenuous, you know, physically. And honestly, I made a mistake. I should have taken a couple of jobs, or maybe should have, you know, at least uh, looked into them more. But long story short. You know, four or five times I was supposed to go to the bench, uh, both in Charlotte and other teams. And when my, um, when, uh, the, in 2018, we knew our run in Charlotte was over. They were going to change everybody. We knew it kind of in advance. And, but I, I had a couple, uh, I would say, uh, verbal agreements, you know, to join their, their, their coaching staffs. Um, and don't ask me why, it still burns to this day. A couple of those teams at the last moment either went in the other direction or decided not to not to hire in that position. Um, I wasn't looking for a scouting job at the time, but then um, I had a relationship with Pilate Divac, you know, from the Lakers days and, you know, European connections and he offered me a position, real nice position that I had never done before. You know, we, we you get bored of doing the same things over and over, like in, in anything. So he said, well, you could be, uh, we're looking for somebody to direct pro scouting. I had never done pro scouting before. And that was, I realized right away that I had just come off a, a, a back surgery and pro scouting allowed me to not only travel easier because I'm going to direct, I'm going direct flights, better arenas, you know, longer games, but it, it, just, it just fit me better. And I really, I've, I've done that for two years and I've really enjoyed it. I did have another physical issue, you know, with my health, with my back again, my first year, but um, overall pro scouting, was the missing link in my, let's say scouting expertise. And it allows me to be a little bit closer to the NBA game. And you know, when you're doing college, you're doing international, you think you know the NBA because you watch your team play on TV and you watch highlights, but guess what? You don't know it until you see every team and you actually specifically scout each team and their style of play and each player, you really don't know the NBA game. And I realized that and uh, I'm really grateful that I've had an opportunity to to cover this area also. And I, I feel a lot richer you know, in terms of basketball knowledge uh, today because I'm doing pro.
1: And it's interesting to see like the difference in that. Real quick, can you just, because our listeners really don't, I, I mean, I didn't even understand it. And then you, you told us about it at, at scout school. You just walked us through a, basically a week in the life or a month in the life of, of like your travel schedule. Can you just kind of explain what that's like and how crazy it is?
2: This is where um, scouting becomes interesting because yeah, you can have an eye for talent and you can get a job or you can be really organized and get a job. But after all these years I've been doing this, over 20 years, it's kind of – there's like an art to even doing your schedule, okay, and to picking the hotel. I mean, after a while you go to the same places, you realize, okay, this hotel's a little bit closer to the airport. If I got an 8 a.m. flight the next morning, I got to be there at 6.30. So you kind of coordinate everything around the flights you know, the hotels, and the game, and, and also a good meal. So um, – I think when I was at uh, at scout school, I think I gave you guys my schedule for one month and it showed you how many games I saw. And let's make this clear. Not every month is as intense as the hearts of the season. But since usually teams have a mid-season scouting meeting um, in in, in their team city, like we go to Sacramento, like let's say um, January 10th to the 15th for four or five days, okay? And we have meetings, we talk about everything. By then, we have to have seen all prospects and all NBA teams, okay, by then. And then we decide how to move forward after that if we're going to try to be more specific and target guys. But the first two or three months of the season, you really have to see as much as you can. So you're really focusing on quantity over quality. So I'll tell you, since the NBA started, started their season earlier, like October 20th, I'll tell you, November and December or end of October to to, to Christmas, those two months, they are intense, okay? So, you know, you're gonna be missing birthday parties, your kids, you know, parties or school events, and uh, you're basically living on the road. Now, when you become a veteran like me and other guys I work with, you know how to work the schedules. So for the pros example, now for college, you gotta go where the player is. Right now for pro, I'm going where the team is. So I gotta see teams a certain number of times. But I'm gonna look at the, the schedules, especially cities near me so we can be fiscally responsible. So I'm based in Miami right now. I'm looking at Orlando, Atlanta, New Orleans because it's the closest West Coast team for me. Okay, so I'm looking at theirs and I'm gonna find the cluster games. So you got three, three games in five days. That's the best. When you got you know Monday, Wednesday, Friday games and you're there all week but you can see three games in five days. That's, that's the best you could do. Sometimes you can get two in three days or three and four sometimes, but that is huge. So now I'm staying in one city. I'm not breaking my back, going you know, from you know, city to city. And I can still have, a, I still have some days off to get a workout in and actually put my um, scouting reports in the database uh, and get some rest. Because the hardest thing we do in this business is when you have a game, a, every day, you have a game in a different city. That is tough. You, you fall behind on your reports so easily, okay? So again, knowing how to, to budget your schedule and, um, and, and figure out where to go and where it makes sense. You know, nobody's gonna, I'm not going to Miami to LA, to Toronto, <laughs> to Chicago, down to Miami. I don't do that. You know, I try to look in my area first and at some point I know I gotta go on the West Coast. And when I go to the West Coast, you know, I don't wanna take a five hour flight. So I'm gonna go from Miami to Dallas, to Houston, to Denver, to Phoenix, to LA. So I'm working my way there and I see a bunch of games on the West Coast. So that's kind of how I kind of look at it. And I think it's the best way to do it also, not to spend, you know, team's money uh, responsibly.
1: Uh, that's great in terms of how much of a, a strategic chess match it is, not just scouting players, but then also just getting yourself to the arena. It's well, and then you think you're think really of. smart,
2: because when you, when you put all this together, you think you're really smart, then you see the same scouts at the same game. They're like, you know, we're, we're all doing this the same way, yeah. I guess. <laughs>
1: So just for our listeners that don't really understand what it's like to be an NBA scout, and you did a great job of explaining to us at scout school how it's your job to make the GM see the player, okay? whether it's comparisons, whether it's through descriptions and just, and, and, and all these different attributes. Can you kind of go into that and, and, what, and what that's like for you?
2: Well, think about this. A general manager has a million things to handle, okay? And most GMs get out and scout, but they don't scout everybody. They're going to go and see who you have listed as a potential first round player first or lottery player, whatever. You need to know those guys. So the way I'm looking at it is our job is to make the general manager's job easier. And if I write a three page report on a guy and at the end I say, but he can't play. He's like, what the hell? You made me waste 10 minutes reading this. I don't wanna know that. Tell me who I need to see. Okay, so that's, that's important. And communication has become easier these days you know, it used to be a little bit harder, but now it's, you know, it's very hard not to know a name of a player. Now there have been cases in the past where guys who had mediocre college careers, all of a sudden they're the hottest name. Donovan Mitchell comes to mind, you know, he didn't do much at Louisville. And then after the season, he's having monster workouts and, and, and next thing you know, everybody wants him. Um, that's where the GM may be like, well, why weren't we paying more attention to this guy? And um, that's where you can make a mistake. But the truth is we can only do, we can only, I, and we made some mistakes in Charlotte, but I usually say you got to remember how you see a player or how you feel about a player in February, March, not in June, because a guy may play four crappy years and then have two or three really good workouts. And then you're like, Oh, I really like him. I'm like, we can't ignore his past and um, GMs. And owners who have not been out there doing that, um, you know, they may fall in love with a player based on a workout and that is really tricky. Now there have been cases where a guy was really that good and Donovan Mitchell is a guy, you know, but it's hard to ignore a guy that played really good for 30 games all year long, instead of just, you know, when the season was over. So we have to continually, continuously, um, you know, update the GM and talk as a staff, have Zoom calls like this during the season where we get a chance to kind of bring up topics and disagree because half of this job is disagreeing with the other guys. And uh, even if you like a guy, you may like somebody better. And it, that's where it's difficult. There's a high risk for error in this, in this job.
1: Well, of course. And then when it comes to breaking down all those categories to kind of make that, uh, to build that player up and, and make a decision on them, um, you you also um, really stressed how it's important to always put basketball first, how sometimes it's easy to get caught up in, the medicals or the measurables or the bat or the interviews or the, 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 like you just said, as you just said, the workouts, but how, when you put those stuff ahead of basketball, a lot of the time it doesn't play out very well. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit?
2: Well, that's, that's a very delicate subject right now because so many GMs now are so obsessed with Intel. And now, you know, a lot of gyms are analytically oriented and that's a kind of a new wave of the last 10, 12 years. And a lot of teams have had success with that. And, um, I'm still learning about analytics and how it applies, um, but I think that the new wave, we, all of us have been a little bit distracted because we're, we're starting to, we're trying to reinvent the wheel, when at the end of the day, the most important thing is how a player plays the game and what skills translate at the NBA level, okay? Yep. Absolutely intangibles, work ethic, your intel are important, absolutely but you cannot draft. I'll give you a perfect example. And I bring it up all the time. And it, my first year in Charlotte, we drafted at number two, which was basically number one, because you, Anthony Davis was unanimously, you know, out of the category, out of that list. He was so good. We picked Michael Kidd Gilchrist at number two. Well, how did we come to that conclusion? It was my first year and I was a little, you know, I didn't, I hadn't seen him much. I kind of shut up, but We put too much emphasis on analytics and on intel because he he measured really well and he was a great kid and he had all the intangibles. But you can't pick a player without talents and without specific skills at the number two pick because after that, you had guys like Bradley Beal, Harrison Barnes, um, uh, Chris Middleton went in the second round, um, Damian Lillard, Andre Drummond. I mean, like there were probably 50 better players than him. And um, I think that was a, an example of where, you know, we focused more on building a culture with good guys, rather than, you know, hey, we got to go with it. We're, we're drafting number two. Even if a guy has a flaw or something, we got to draft the best talents available. You know, Bradley Beal a 30 point score, <laughs> you know, Damon Lillard's a 30 point score. You know, that's, you just have to, regardless of what you need, you got to go with the best talent available at, at, when you're picking in the lottery.
1: Oh, of, of course. And, and you also touched on this at, at scout school, how Yanni was also drafted 15th by the Bucks, and how you had said that people knew he was good, but it was just a fear thing of taking a guy that no one really knew about or that was, you know, that was from Greece with the 15th pick that we didn't know that much about.
2: And in 2013, oh, if you remember, yeah. it was a really, really bad draft. And we knew going in there, it was going to be a tough draft. We had the fourth pick. Um, It was a year where guys that had kind of separated themselves were Ben McLemore at Kansas, but I started having doubts. Cody Zeller, who we ended up taking at number four, Alex Len, And towards the end of the season, and Anthony Bennett was good at UNLV, but there were a lot of question marks about him. And then Victor Oladipo had a second part of the season where he started tearing it up and people started seeing potential with him so anthony davis went excuse me anthony bennett went number one which was honestly was a joke um Oladipo went number two number three was was that otto porter i can't remember right now and number four was cody zeller at the time that was a good pick and because after that there were a bunch of busts and number 15 Giannis was picked now Keep in mind that every I think a lot of teams like Giannis, they saw the talent, they saw the potential, but he was a baby, he probably weighed 160 pounds. He had not been tested at the pro level. He had played in, the, in an amateur league, a secondary league. Um, he played at the junior level where he would tear it up. But the another thing was his life history. He had never left the city of Athens. He had never been outside of Greece, although he was Nigerian blood, you know, his parents had, had had him, he was born in Greece and he didn't have a passport. So there are a lot of things. He had not played in international competition because he couldn't play for the Greek national team at the time. So there are a lot of moving parts. Now, I'm, I'm not gonna try to toot my horn or my staff's horn at the time, but we tried to get an additional pick. It was ridiculous at the time to pick a young kid like that who had needed at least two years um, to pick him at number four we needed we, had, we were coming off winning 19 games we needed a player that could step in and play and a lot of teams felt that way we tried to to acquire a pick I think in the early teens so late lottery, like 11 or 12 to pick him and just see what happens and I and initially the plan was for Giannis to stay in Europe a couple of years the Bucks made a monster move but that was a low risk you know pick at 15 who cares if it doesn't pan out so they said well let's bring him over right now and see what we got every day that that kid got bigger better more athletic smarter everything and after year 1 you could already tell the kid was going to become an all-star you knew it you know but again it took a lot of courage it would have taken a lot of courage to take the kid in the top the top 10 okay at 15 it was a safe pick and it worked out obviously
1: it's so interesting how that difference in numbers and how just a few, a few numbers and, and like 15, uh, right. outside the lottery that just one move, it, it changes everything. It um, changes their friend. And again, that's yeah.
2: a, that's a small market, you know, and you know, they, at one point this year, I thought they were the best team in the league, you know, and because they had, they had one of the three best players, I think. And, uh, but you know, sometimes you pick up, you gamble on a player like a Giannis or somebody like that, who's unproven or very young, and he ends up in the wrong environment. The Milwaukee Bucks had created a great work environment. They had good guys, and that kid liked to work. And he, he maybe if he had drafted, he had been drafted by New York or, or the Lakers or the Clippers. Maybe he would have had more distractions off the court. You know, you got to wonder about that sometimes. Or he would have could have ended up in an organization with, you know, a culture that it was not you know well defined. And maybe he would not have embraced that role of working, working on his game to get better and eventually becoming who he is today and a two-time MVP. So, you know, you got to end up in the right spot also.
1: And that's also a big thing about players' careers in terms of where they fall in the draft. It's, a thing, it's something that's out of their control in terms of where GMs or teams pick them. But that can completely change everything, Whether it's whether you're starting right away or whether you're in a a compliment or something like like that just completely can change the entire trajectory of a player's career. It's it's Let's take
2: another example. Look at Dirk Nowitzki when he came in the league. Okay. The Dallas Mavericks were terrible. And they said, we don't care. We're going to win 10, 15, 20 games, but we're going to play this kid. We're going to see what we got. Okay. Because if it doesn't work out, we're all going to get fired. And guess what? He played, he got better. And the rest is history.
1: Definitely. Off that point in terms of like what you're looking at when you're looking at these guys what, what kind of skills do you see whether it's shooting um rebounding what skills do you see that you think translate best to the nba level and what other ones do you see that maybe don't make as much of an impact where you see a guy that's a great at a certain skill and he might not be great at that at the nba well, what are those skills like it's
2: tough to say because i think we would have to project it skill to be a star skill to be a role player something like that um obviously the way the nba is structured today You pay all your money to your talented players, and then you got to find role players that are great defenders, this and that, who are maybe even undrafted, but they have a role and they fit around superstar players. I mean, if they had told me years ago that guys like Dorian Finney-Smith, Torrey Craig, um, Royce O'Neal, guys like this were mostly defensive players, they were all three undrafted, okay, and they've become – key players for their teams they're you know that x factor that glue guy you know so guys like that who are let's say um roster guys who eventually break into the rotation because of what they do around really good players i think they have to have a specific role and and skill in their case it's defense but all those guys have improved in other areas because they had a chance to play and, and they had a good work ethic when you're talking about starting a franchise that's a whole different, you know, mindset. You're, you're talking about, um, like I said before, with Michael Kidd Gilchrist. If you're picking at number two, that guy you get, he's got to have talent and margin for improvement. And, you know, more than one skill. Um, intangibles. Everything, you cannot make a mistake. Now, if you pick a guy at number four in the, dra- in the draft, and somebody at seven becomes better than him what's important is that you can't control all that what's important is that your guy is not a bust okay Um, but if you're picking high in the draft and you're counting on building a franchise around a player that guy has to have you know a lot of skills and has to be physically imposing athletic and not injury prone and and at the end of the day he has to know how to do at least you know uh, four out of the five of passing, shooting, dribbling, playing without the ball, defending, he has have to, have, have to have four or five of these skills. You just cannot, you can't build a team around one skill. So yeah, um, skills translate to the NBA level in different ways, depending also on his role uh, on the team.
1: And all those skills are super important. I remember one skill you told us a lot about it is shooting kind of can, can transcend levels. And, and it's, it's a big thing where if a guy can shoot in one level, he could probably shoot in the next. I remember when we went to scout school, it was just a few days after Duncan Robinson hit 10 threes and just completely shocked the world. And you, and you had mentioned that as to how, not not just how about the Heat's uh, franchise and their culture of picking guys, but also how they're able to see that talent and say, okay, this guy has this, an insane talent. Let's let's nurture him. Let's develop him. Let's take a chance on him. What are, you, what are your thoughts on on, on on how that played out?
2: Well, I think I told you this at Scout School. I'm going to repeat it today because I'm living by this motto. And um, the more I move forward in this business, look, we try to get complex. We try to make it more complicated than what it is. If you can shoot, you can make shots. Even if you're not a great creator, you can't do anything else. If you're a one trick pony, but you can make shots, you're going to play. You're going to find a job. Look at players in the league. Troy Daniels, Del Curry played until he was 40 years old. Um, Duncan Robinson is a great example, which I'll dive into in a second. But um, a few years back, the great George Raveling had on his website, he had some guests. He called Hubie Brown and they had a conversation like you and I are having today. And they talk about when he was in college basketball. And you may not know this, but Hubie Brown and Chuck Daly were assistants at Duke in the late 60s and they were in charge of recruiting. And at one point they were sitting down and they're going, we are kind of flip flopping and we're going back and forth. We, so we take this kid or this kid, they're both really good. And at the end, Chuck Daly looked at Hubie and said, when, you, when in doubt, let's go with the best shooter, okay? And he said, shooting makes up for a multitude of sins. So think about that. You know, you could be limited, but if you can make a shot, they can put you in a game and you could help. When I saw Duncan Robinson in, in, in college, I don't think I said good European prospect, a little soft, a little this, a little that. Basically he's a one trick pony, but he's a good shooter. Now he was not the shooter he is today, okay? So I saw him in the G League last season. I thought he was fair. I still thought he's a European player. I live in Miami. The, the team I see the most in the NBA, more than the Sacramento Kings is the Miami Heat because I attend most of their home games. In preseason, they started They started him. They wanted to see what they had. He was 0 for 5, 1 for 6, 1 for 8, and I just saw a player that had no confidence, okay? Sure, he could make shots one on zero in warmups. He did nothing else. And to me, he, was, he should have been cut after you know three preseason games. The season starts, once in a while, he had a game where he made three out of four, something like that, but then they take him out because he couldn't do anything else. As the season progressed, This kid got better every day. Now, I'm gonna credit him for sticking with it and being tough because that was his reputation. He's too soft. But he was picked up by an organization that in their history, they have developed players better than any other team in the league. And also, okay, sure, he's not the toughest kid, but guess what? Everybody around him, starting with the owner, the president, the head coach, they are tough. His teammates are tough. If he doesn't have guys like um, guys challenging him in practice and guys pushing him like Jimmy Butler, like Goran Dragic, like Bam Adebayo and a great staff, he doesn't become Duncan Robinson. And I'll tell you the truth, and I shouldn't be saying this, but um, I'm not sure what happens if he ends up in a, in a different team. And guess what? If he, does leave the, the, if he does get a huge offer and he goes elsewhere, I'm curious to see if he is the same player on his next team. Okay. And I really, really think this kid is amazing. Okay. He's not the all-around player, Tyler Hero is. Okay. He doesn't have that kind of ceiling, but um, uh, Duncan Robinson is a typical example of a guy with one skill and a team that didn't pick his game apart. They invested in that one skill and they're, they're in the NBA finals also because of that mentality. They did it with Kendrick Nunn. They did it with Silva. They did it with um, um, Derek Jones Jr. And they're doing it with, with uh, Duncan Robinson. So my hat goes down to him, Duncan, and that organization especially.
1: Definitely take your hats off to the Miami Heat for what they've done. And it's crazy to think about how investing in that one skill could change so much. And But also, it's, I was thinking about this just now, how... As, as a scout, you can do everything you can, you know, what you're seeing, what you're what, like, everything you're seeing in front of you is one for six is, is this guy is a one trick pony and all that and all that. But then he, the after, let's say you make that decision of cutting him, let's, let's, hypothetically, he goes, works on his game, gets 100 times better. And now everyone's saying, oh, well, you messed that up when in fact, you, you made the right critique, you made the right um, observation. But then after the observation was made, the player just completely transforms themselves. And that's, you know, so that's something that could be blamed on on, on, a, on a scout team.
2: No. Well, that's, that's when it's difficult. There's a, there's a, you know, a 50, almost a 50, 50 chance of of getting things right. And what's important is that you're not really, really wrong. (laughs) And when you're right, you're really, really right. But um, there, 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 there's a margin for error. That's huge. And I forgot, I wanted to say something I forgot. It'll come to mind in a second about this, but um, it's, it's, you can, you can, you just can't know. And if you do give up, Um, Well, this is what I'm going to say about Duncan individually. That um, there's a phase as a basketball player. If you and I have that phase when you recognize, when you realize, and it's usually about before you go to college or something like that, or when you realize that you're not good enough, or contrary, when you realize you're a lot better than what you thought. I saw this with Paul Gasol when he was in Barcelona. It's like he's soft. He doesn't have it. He's never. And then all of a sudden. He realizes he's a lot better than what he thought. And he's, then he started dunking on everybody. Okay, well, <laughs> I think that Duncan Robinson is one of those guys. He probably didn't believe he could be an NBA player. He makes one shot, two shots, and the guys keep encouraging him. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I'm a bad man. And I can play in this league. When you recognize that you belong, that you can fit in the NBA, that's a turning point for you and your career. And that actually um, triggers a circle of success where the more success you have, you taste success, you work harder because you enjoyed it so much and you keep getting better, okay? The bullshit player has a little success, fails one game and then he kind of gives up and then he like, once in a while he has a little success and he gets excited again, no, it doesn't work like that. And I really think that all of us in any profession, once we realize that we're good, that we're, it happens to me, sometimes I get discouraged. Then I'm like, maybe this is not for me. And other times I'm like, you know what? I know my crap. I know, I know how to do this stuff and I'm gonna uh, keep uh, grinding and I'm gonna make the best of it. And Duncan is sure. a perfect example.
1: Confidence is, is huge and it's such a game changer. Confidence has a huge, plays a huge role in shooting. So I just wanted to ask you about the two books you wrote about Mastering the Art of Free Throw Shooting and Shoot Like the Pros. What was that process like for you in making the books? And then and what's it kind of been like kind of spreading that shooting knowledge?
2: Well, I gotta tell you, you know, as I said earlier, we all evolve, and um, I'm not saying I got bored with scouting, but because we, first of all, we all love to play. At some point, we don't play anymore, um, but we still like to go shoot hoops. It's like kind of going, going to play catch with your son, you know, with the baseball and the glove. Well, because of the nature of scouting, when we're observing fundamentals, and shooting is no doubt the most important one, I started being really critical like okay this guy's elbow is out this guy's um wrist is out of position you start noticing things and i would continue to shoot myself and i realized that i was improving as a shooter because of my observations watching other players and also watching myself so i kind of became more of a shooting specialist when i had already quit playing so basically around maybe 35 i'm 48 now um, but i really started to um, spend more time teaching and teaching myself how to shoot better. All my notes and observations led to me um, writing my first book It came out in 2011. And it, it, it started because somebody had asked me to write an article for a basketball magazine on shooting technique. I, and I wrote a page and then it was two pages. The next thing I know, it's like hundred pages. So I wrote a book, it was really successful. Now you don't make a lot of money, you know, writing books these days, but I got to tell you, Going through the process, I improved myself, and um, it was, uh, the first book was more like a general book on shooting, covers all aspects, but the second book, which did not have the same success, I I felt it was a much more in-detail, in-depth book, because it talks about, it's more mechanical about, you know, because the free throw is the ultimate mental and mechanical shot it's the mother of all shots. So writing a book on that had never been really done before. And, um, but I think that um, it's very useful. It's useful also for people that aren't interested in teaching or learning how to shoot because, you know, you you learn as a scout, for example a young scout may find the books interesting because then when he's evaluating a player he can notice certain things that are important because, hey, and I know the Spurs, they do this. They have their shooting coach, watch a bunch of prospects to kind of say, hey, where is this guy? Can we get this kid better or not? Because some flaws are hard to overcome, okay? Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Shaquille O'Neal, Ben Wallace, they had flaws that were very hard to correct. But some guys maybe aren't making shots, but their technique is not broken and you can adjust things pretty easily and they can improve. So that's important to know during the scouting process if the guy can eventually improve in that area. So yeah, that's that's... Look, shooting is, is, come on, this game is a lot more fun when you're making baskets, when you can make shots and that's where your confidence you know, comes in. And you can, you can, if you're a threat to make shots, that automatically opens up your one-on-one game and also opens up shots for your teammates. So being a threat to make shots is key in this game.
1: Well, for sure, shooting's definitely a skill that just opens up the entire, just can break an entire game open. Just um, to to wrap up, I just kind of wanted to ask you about some advice you'd have for a young person that's trying to be in a position like yours one day. And and then also on top of that, if that advice is different than the advice you'd give a 20-year-old version of yourself.
2: that's, that's That's a really good question. I think that, first of all, I think that at the time, you know, today it's very hard to break into this business. There are more roles today. It's easier to break into this business coming in like as an intern and they like you. And next thing you know, they move you into the front office and then you become a scout or whatever. There there are cases, there are general managers in the NBA that started like that. Okay. But obviously, your competition is huge. I remember in Charlotte, we had a thousand emails for an internship, unpaid internship, just to get your foot in the door. A thousand. We had to pick one, you know. So um, that kind of puts things in perspective. Uh, What advice would I have? Well, again, I didn't realize it because it happened so quick. And I didn't realize it, but I had a certain skill set. And again, it was my bicultural thing and the international basketball at that time. If I could go back in time, I would probably like to break into the business through the video coordinator side. Vogel, Spolstra, the two head coaches in the NBA finals, both come from mediocre playing careers into the video room eventually to the bench and the rest is history again. So I would, if I could do things all over again, I would try to break it that way because I realized that I was more, I feel like I'm closer to the coaching side, okay? Or, or just being more part of the team. You know, when you're a scout and I told you guys this in December, hey, you're very distanced from the team and that's kind of keeps you, you don't feel as involved or you don't feel valued because you're so far away. You want to be part of the team. And um, the coaching side allows you to do that. So for me, if I could give advice to myself, it would have been to start there. Today, we have more roles. We have the G League. So I do feel that there are more opportunities. But of course, there are more and more kids that want to break into the NBA business. My advice is to, number one, have the courage to evaluate yourself. And that's hard to do. You know, nobody wants to face you know, the fact that maybe they're unprepared or they're very untalented or they don't have a specific skill or they don't realize it, you know? So we say that players sometimes, he doesn't know who he is. That guy doesn't know who he is. He's taking shots he shouldn't be taking. Well, it's the same thing with us. I think at this point in my life, I'm very realistic with who I am and what I have to offer. I'm very limited. Okay. I know how to scout. I know how to teach shooting and player development. That's about it. And I'm a good teammate. I think that's a, a good quality too. But you know i think somebody has to kind of understand evaluate themselves see if they have a um certain connections who are their contacts in the league or in college basketball okay well i know somebody in this area maybe i should try to pursue that you know that that um side of, of the game so it could be um video coordinator it could be basketball operations whatever it could be scouting, it could be coaching, whatever it is, you got to get your foot in the door, and then you can kind of evaluate, you know, where you are. But don't forget, now, college offers a lot, college uh, graduate assistants, uh, director of operations. But the G League has become to me, if I'm a general manager in the NBA, or working in a high level ranking, I would use the G League also to develop my own future scouts, my own future coaches. Okay. So I'd be more inclined to invest time in younger people than maybe older veteran guys that maybe aren't as motivated anymore because they want to do other things. So I think that's, a, the G league has become a great opportunity. So it's, look, yeah, everybody wants to knock on the Lakers and the, the the Knicks or whatever, you know, their door to get a position, a chance. But uh, realistically, I think you also have to look, you know, at the G league or college ranks to break into the business. Sometimes that may also be working for an agent. You know, of course, when you, when you touch the dark side, people may affiliate you and associate you to, to, to the agent business, which is not very good for somebody who wants to work in the NBA, but there are roles in the agent business um, as scouts, as player development, whatever, where you're helping the main agent. And also we've seen so many agents transition to front office roles in recent years. Rob Palinka, Bob Myers, Justin Zanuck, so many of these guys are now transitioning to the NBA. Why? Because they are salary cap experts, okay? And they have relationships with players. Two key things, okay? That didn't happen when I started, okay? So I think, look, as long as you're working for somebody and you can use that opportunity to meet more people and open up other doors, you're doing the best you can.
1: Oh, for sure. Definitely. Thank you. That's fantastic advice. And and thank you so much for sharing that. And it's definitely something that you you, you touched on a lot um, at scout school. I remember my, my one question um, at the end, you were like, hey, the young guy, I haven't heard from you this whole time. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I was by far the youngest person in the room. And I was like, I just want to know like what advice you'd have for someone that's my age and doing this whole thing. And you, and you pretty much had the same answer you, you have now. And and the first thing I did when I got home that night was uh, register for the scout school event Vegas. It's in Vegas and for the summer league in July, which has obviously since been canceled. But it's just it's just the advice is just something like it's just an ongoing thing. It's just and, and, and stuff, stuff like this show is just another way for me to kind of keep keep living that and keep and keep pushing that, that idea forward. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: I really appreciate it, and I wish you the best. You got a lot of talent, a lot of passion. So in 19, I didn't know what I was gonna be doing. I was interested in other things. And you know what? Um, you're gonna find your way and just continue on this path. All right, man
0: for listening to the big fellas podcast check us out on all major social media platforms at big fellas pod to join the chop up you can also listen to us on every podcast platform on the planet stay tuned for the next episode big fellas